Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse, murder, and rape that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In September 1981, 24-year-old bank teller Shelley Anderson stopped showing up to her shifts. For months, hundreds of her neighbors in Spokane, Washington, helped police search for her. But she was nowhere to be found. Eight months later, the police department asked 57-year-old psychic detective Dorothy Allison for help. She predicted they would find Shelley's body very soon. A month went by with no leads. In June 1982, almost a year after Shelley's disappearance, the Spokane Chronicle published an article condemning Dorothy's questionable assistance. The newspaper interviewed Dorothy's loudest critic, James Randi. Randi called Dorothy a fraud. He challenged her to prove her abilities in a controlled setting. Furious, Dorothy jabbed back at Randy, calling him jealous and small-minded and ignoring his request for proof. More months went by, until finally, two years after Shelley disappeared, the man who bought her house found a suitcase. It had been buried in a compost pile in the backyard. Shelley's skeleton was folded and stuffed inside. Her ex-husband had beaten her to death. Dorothy was not only unhelpful in Shelley's case, but misleading. Plus, her feud with Randy demonstrated a fondness for the spotlight. Skeptics and believers all pondered the same question. Was Dorothy Allison a fraud all along? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on Dorothy Allison, a housewife from New Jersey who solved crimes using psychic powers. Last time, we talked about Dorothy's origins, starting with her accurate vision of her father's death. We watched her rise to fame as she consulted on major criminal cases like Son of Sam and John Wayne Gacy. And we witnessed the criticism she faced during the Atlanta child murders. This time, we'll examine techniques Dorothy might have used to fake her visions, tools like cold reading and retrofitting. We'll also uncover what allegedly motivated Dorothy to trick hundreds of families, including a very flattering book deal. Finally, we'll delve into a CIA study to prove whether Dorothy was gifted or merely a grifter. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. You just can't miss tonight. 
Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The popularity of psychics spiked in the U.S. in the 20th century. At the same time, celebrity skeptics rose to fame. Debunkers like magicians Harry Houdini and James Randi dedicated their lives to disproving false mediums. In his many attacks against Dorothy Allison, Randi accused her of using a technique called retrofitting. Retrofitting is a method that fraudulent psychics use to frame wild guesses as supernatural knowledge. But it can only prove the psychic's accuracy after a case is solved. For example, a medium may claim they see a vision of smoke. If detectives discover that a murderer burned evidence, the psychic could say they made an accurate prediction. However, they could say the same for any clue that involved smoke. Like if the victim carried cigarettes in their pockets, or there was a fireplace at the scene of the crime. Randy claimed that Dorothy listed hundreds of vague words as she waited for a crime to be solved. If one of her words was involved, then presto, she had faked an accurate prediction. In 1994, the University of Hertfordshire and University of Cambridge ran a study that shed light on this technique. They wanted to determine how effective psychics really were in homicide and missing persons investigations. In the study, three professional psychics and three ordinary college students interacted with several objects from a solved crime. Then, each subject gave a series of predictions about each crime based only on their connection with the objects. While the three university students only made 20 guesses, the professional mediums provided 39 clues. And despite giving double the predictions, the psychics had almost the same accuracy as their non-psychic counterparts. In fact, the students actually scored slightly better. The researchers theorized that the psychics provided more clues to boost their chances of saying something accurate. In the same way, Dorothy rattled off dozens of clues during a case. But while she did often appear to be retrofitting, many of her predictions were scarily accurate. In 1988, Dorothy appeared on a TV show called Unsolved Mysteries, which documented cold cases and paranormal phenomena. The producers asked Dorothy to solve the murder of 15-year-old Lori Zimmerman. Lori went missing on April 6, 1984, in her hometown of Hagerstown, Maryland. 
Eight days later, someone found her corpse in a patch of woods. For the next four years, police searched in vain for the killer. When Unsolved Mysteries producers suggested they use Dorothy, the detectives agreed. Dorothy's first call was with Maryland State Police Detective Keith Wattenshade. She shared the preliminary visions she had seen and predicted the case was about an abduction and murder. She also claimed she saw an image of a police officer. Dorothy said he wore some kind of wig and had just shaved his beard. Detective Keith was taken aback and admitted that he wore a hairpiece and had shaved his beard two days prior. Before long, Dorothy was traveling to Hagerstown to work on the Lori Zimmerman case. Without seeing any files, she correctly surmised that Lori had been raped and beaten, but that strangulation was the cause of death. Dorothy did know that someone had violently murdered a teenage girl, so perhaps those were safe predictions. But she also stated less obvious details. For instance, she somehow knew Lori had been hit in the face very hard. And sure enough, Detective Keith confirmed that the killer broke her jaw. Dorothy also specified that something inside Lori's throat had suffocated her to death. This was an especially unique piece of information because it had been kept from the public. The accuracy continued. In her first phone call with Detective Keith, she'd told him the numbers one and seven were important. When Dorothy visited Lori's grave, she saw the plot number was 17. She also saw the word Cleveland, and the closest street to where Lori died was called Cleveland Town Road. And she predicted there would be an old church when a church sat just a half mile from the scene of the crime. But while detectives believe these were accurate predictions, a skeptic would probably see evidence of retrofitting. It's fairly easy to have a number or two correlate to something in a crime. An address, a license plate number, even a case file. And the word Cleveland could have meant anything. That the criminal was from there, or maybe a detective was a fan of the Cavaliers. Not to mention, Maryland has 109,816 churches. Lori could have been killed at any location in the state, and it would probably be near a church. In addition to being vague, Dorothy also provided a long list of visions. Again, a common tactic of retrofitting. She offered a total of 50 clues. Dorothy claimed she saw a yellow car, the street Lori disappeared on, a library, a pair of brothers or cousins, a janitor, someone who had problems with his feet, and someone with suicidal tendencies. Detective Keith followed up on all of her leads, but none of these other clues proved helpful. And 37 years later, Lori's murder remains unsolved. But since Dorothy did have a handful of correct guesses, and since she didn't predict the murder actually being solved, her reputation was bolstered. In this case, the same signs that indicated retrofitting also convinced people like Nutley, New Jersey police detective Don Vicaro that Dorothy was legitimate. Vicaro had worked with Dorothy on her very first case, finding the body of five-year-old Michael Cursus. Once they found him, police backtracked and saw that all of Dorothy's predictions fit into place like a puzzle. 
In an interview on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, Vaccaro said he kicked himself for not putting it together sooner. Vicaro's interview, which complimented Dorothy, still pointed out an issue. If Dorothy's clues only made sense after someone else solved the crime, then she wasn't helping the investigation. Even if she got information correct, it was more of a benefit to her reputation than the case. And there were other fraudulent techniques that Dorothy could have used to maintain success. Instead of making random guesses, some fake psychics can make informed assumptions that sound like predictions. This is called cold reading. Someone's vocabulary, clothes, and posture can reveal a lot about their character, not to mention class, education, and relationship status. Phony psychics use these details in cold readings to make deductions about people, the same way Sherlock Holmes solved his crimes. Dorothy often claimed she had visions before meeting the people involved with a case, which would reduce her ability to cold read. But once she encountered parents or police, their body language could help keep her predictions on track. For example, when Dorothy arrived in Hagerstown, she had a fresh wave of predictions about Laurie. She claimed being around the scene of the crime prompted more visions. But perhaps it was because she could now read the detective's body language. If Dorothy had guessed something Detective Keith disagreed with, he'd likely tilt his head away from her, nod quickly, and look down. Then she'd know her prediction didn't match what he knew about the case, so she'd try something else. Retrofitting and cold reading require intense observation and focus, but they could have sustained Dorothy throughout her psychic career. Still, relying on educated guesses would only slightly improve her accuracy, and Dorothy was famous for her correct and specific predictions. Perhaps this was because she knew the answers ahead of time. In 1980, one year before Shelley Anderson's disappearance, Dorothy arrived in Spokane, Washington, to assist with a murder case. She worked with County Detective Mike Massong. In the same 1982 article that featured James Randi, the Spokane Chronicle also interviewed Detective Massong. Massong felt excited when Dorothy correctly guessed details of the case. But later he found out that a supervisor gave her reports to read before the meeting. Dorothy didn't disclose that she'd read these files, which Masong believed was definitely on purpose. And in the Chronicle's article, Dorothy came across like a cheat. Despite Masong's testimony, this accusation didn't affect the rest of Dorothy's career. Even if she had seen the files during this one case, it clearly wasn't her main strategy. If she always faked predictions in this way, she would have had to constantly convince new police officers to leak information to her. And besides Detective Massong, there were no other accusations that Dorothy saw information ahead of time. So perhaps this was a one-time attempt to cheat. Or maybe Massong mistook a normal discussion of the case for a psychic prediction. If Dorothy was a fraud, she would always have an upper hand. That's because the strongest tool any phony psychic has is the audience's willingness to believe. The great American showman P.T. Barnum is believed to have once said, there is a sucker born every minute. 
This quote inspired the name of a psychological phenomenon called the Barnum Effect. It describes when people are willing to believe vague information is true, especially from someone like a psychic or card reader. People's brains are hardwired to pick out information that is specific to their life, even when what they're hearing could apply to anyone. So when they hear vague statements from a horoscope or a medium, they believe it applies to their specific situation. In Dorothy's case, her victims were desperate police officers and heartbroken families. Perhaps she saw these heartbroken families as the biggest suckers of all and used them to create a name for herself. Coming up, a bow and arrow defend Dorothy's legitimacy. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There, you'll find a more disturbing tale, one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. From retrofitting to the Barnum effect, there were plenty of techniques Dorothy Allison could have used to fake her powers. But if Dorothy pretended to solve crimes, these strategies only explained how, not why. Dorothy's mother was also a psychic. People would sometimes arrive in the middle of the night looking for her to give them advice. And Dorothy grew up watching her mother predict the future. There isn't enough information about Dorothy's mother to say whether she was fraudulent or genuine. But if she was a phony, she could have taught Dorothy some tricks. Alternatively, Dorothy's mother could have genuinely believed in her visions and taught her daughter to harness psychic powers. Dorothy wrote in her autobiography that prior to her detective career, she only used her powers to give friends advice. For decades, these neighborhood predictions were her only scope. She didn't have the dream about the five-year-old drowning victim, Michael Cursus, until she was 43. So if she had seen visions since she was 14, as she claimed, it's suspicious that it took her so long to find her path. There are two options why Dorothy didn't become a psychic detective until her 40s. She may have truly seen visions, but didn't think to use them to solve crimes until she saw Michael Curses. Or instead, it took her until age 43 to realize that posing as a psychic could be a lucrative career. 
Even when she began her crime-solving career, Dorothy stuck out from other professional psychics. For one, she refused payment from families she helped. Some believed that not accepting money was strategic, more about building her brand than a moral code. She knew people would be less likely to call her a charlatan if she wasn't even charging. Once her persona was established, Dorothy started raking in social capital. Newspapers wrote about her slapping murderers in the face, working 10-hour days, and sleeping with the photos of the children who died in her cases. And once the publicity picked up, Dorothy began charging a fee for interviews and TV appearances. Despite her insistence that she didn't make money from the families, Dorothy absolutely profited from her own fame. Sometimes it was at the expense of the very case she was supposed to solve. As we discussed last time, Dorothy traveled to Atlanta in 1980 to assist in a string of child murders. Upon her arrival, she talked a big game to the cameras. She called the killer a worm and a rat and claimed he wouldn't dare hurt any more children now that she was around. It was the perfect speech for her recently published book. In this autobiography, written by Dorothy and author Scott Jacobson, Dorothy was a daring superhero. Men flirted with her. Detectives called her brave. Neighbors thought she was a saint. At best, the book seemed like an exaggerated ego trip. At worst, a money grab founded on dead children. It also seemed like she was more concerned about publicity for her book than solving the Atlanta case. In the Los Angeles Times, one unnamed officer called Dorothy that wacko who rode around in a big limousine, ate real well for three days, and then went home. Dorothy provided over 40 possible names to the Atlanta PD, a possible sign of retrofitting. She also said the killer was a black man angered by his own poverty, which could point to deductive reasoning. The neighborhoods the killings took place in were predominantly black and impoverished. When she ultimately didn't solve the case, it made her look like a phony. But instead of acknowledging her failures, Dorothy doubled down to save her reputation. She claimed her predictions were only wrong because she'd already solved the case back in 1978, at the time she'd been investigating a murder in Columbus, Georgia, when she saw Wayne Williams, the future Atlanta child murderer, killing children. But since this was two years before those slayings, she didn't know who the man in her visions was. Once the Atlanta murders actually began, she still didn't think to make the connection. It wasn't until the killer was caught and identified that she'd realized it matched her visions from two years earlier. The whole thing sounded suspicious. It had taken a captured suspect for Dorothy to put two and two together. And with the case already solved, all anyone had to go on was her word. This wasn't the only time Dorothy met controversy with blunt denial. She also butted heads with the Patterson, New Jersey police in 1979. In the search for eight-year-old Delvis Matias, detectives George Brajack and Harold Pegg felt that Dorothy had led them on a wild goose chase. The police found Delvis's corpse without Dorothy's help. But according to Brajack, she asked them to tell the cameras she helped find the body. 
Allegedly, she even offered to pay for shared credit, claiming the publicity would be good for her book. If this story was true, it could cast doubt on many of the testimonials Dorothy received over her career. Perhaps her most staunch believers were also benefiting from Dorothy's act. For instance, most of the Nutley detectives appeared in her book and garnered praise for their work. But this is also where the argument against Dorothy falters. Dorothy consulted on hundreds of cases during her career, but only Detective Brajack accused her of bribery. If Dorothy's entire life relied on bribing police officers, hundreds of people would have to be in on the conspiracy. It seems strange that only one would refuse to lie for her. If she was a phony, she was either extremely lucky with her tactics or able to convince hundreds of police to cover for her. Neither seem like durable strategies. Eventually, someone would get caught. Not to mention, Dorothy would have had to be cold-hearted. If she was a fraud, then she lied to grieving families and took advantage of their desperation for 30 years. It honestly seems more likely that Dorothy was a dedicated psychic just trying to find murdered children. And maybe she got entangled in some self-justification and a love for the spotlight along the way. It also seems unlikely that someone would choose a psychic detective's lifestyle if they had another option. Dorothy had a happy, comfortable life before her crime-solving career. Her husband was a contracting engineer, so they were comfortably middle class, and she loved being a mother. Later in life, Dorothy repeatedly discussed what a burden her visions could be. The police kept her busy, and seeing so many violent murder cases impacted her mental health. She suffered from fits of depression and felt overwhelmed by the images of raped and slaughtered children. Plus, Dorothy's work was polarizing. She gained just as many critics as supporters. Skeptics like Detective Brajack and James Randi battered her reputation. They called her a flimflam artist and a fraud and insulted her in interviews the entire country could read. And then there were the hard facts. Dorothy's visions were often accurate and specific. On December 20th, 1974, a New York banker named John DeMars took the train from Manhattan to New Jersey, but he never made it home. Instead, he vanished into thin air. Most detectives assumed he'd been embezzling money from his company and decided to make a bizarre escape. Stumped, the Nutley police went to Dorothy for advice. However, her visions were nothing like they expected. She informed them that John had drowned. The police felt confused. John was on a train. He couldn't have drowned. But Dorothy was adamant. Her next visions were of a row of tires, a sledding hill, the number 222, and finally, a bow and arrow. Detectives thought she was ridiculous. If Dorothy was retrofitting, she would have chosen clues closely related to John DeMar's situation. She could have said he ran away with a mistress or was killed in an attempted robbery. This would match the setting of a train and the profile of a wealthy banker. A bow and arrow did not fit the expected narrative. Two months later, on February 22, 1975, a father and son played target practice with a bow and arrow by the Passaic River. 
While retrieving a stray arrow, the father discovered the body of John DeMars washed up at the edge of the river. His corpse was across the street from a hill, and at the bottom of the hill, rows of tires had been arranged to make a sled run, just like Dorothy's vision. It would be nearly impossible for Dorothy to guess all of those elements together, especially since nobody thought John drowned in the first place. She even predicted the date of discovery, February 22nd, 2-2-2. Detective Salvatore Lubertazzi was so impressed by Dorothy that he accompanied her to different cases across the nation. And this admiration didn't just come from the Nutley police. In 1976, Dorothy helped locate the body of Ellen Jacobson's 14-year-old daughter, Susan. From then on, Ellen stayed in touch with the psychic, counting her as a friend. She told the TV show Unsolved Mysteries that if Dorothy suddenly told her to go outside and cross the street, she would do so with no questions. That's how deep her trust was. This could be the Barnum Effect speaking. Ellen's gratefulness for Dorothy's help may have outweighed her judgment. However, the clues in Susan's case were also too specific to pin on retrofitting. For example, Dorothy accurately saw the red letters M-A-R, which were spray-painted on a rock near the body. Even people who didn't benefit from Dorothy's visions believed her. When Dorothy investigated the kidnapping of 19-year-old Patty Hearst in 1974, her clues didn't initially prove helpful. Regardless, Patty's father, Randolph Hearst, called her honest and reputable. Likewise, Chief Joseph Kozensack of the Des Plaines, Illinois Police dismissed Dorothy from the John Wayne Gacy case in 1979. She hadn't provided useful clues, but he still believed her visions helped the investigation. Later in life, Chief Kozenzak would go on to write a book called The Psychic Path, The Use of Psychics in the John Wayne Gacy Serial Murder Investigation. In it, Kozenzak highlighted the history and development of psychic criminology. Dorothy had not only turned him into a believer, but an advocate. Dorothy helped solve more than a dozen murders and found at least 50 missing children. While skeptics cast doubt on her abilities, there were some numbers they couldn't ignore, like statistical evidence proving that psychic abilities were real. Coming up, Stanford University and the CIA study ESP. Now back to the story. After examining the case against psychic detective Dorothy Allison, it appears she might be legitimate. Even science backed up her claims. Around the same time as Dorothy's career, a man named Russell Targ led one of the biggest parapsychological studies in history. In 1958, Targ was a physicist who had always been interested in parapsychology, the study of psychic phenomena. So he joined the American Society for Psychical Research, an organization dedicated to studying psychic powers. By 1972, the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, wanted to launch a study on remote viewing, the ability to retrieve information using extrasensory perception, or ESP, as opposed to the five senses. 
Targ's niche set of interests made him a natural choice to lead the study. According to Targ's study, remote viewing took three forms, clairvoyance, telepathy, and precognition. Clairvoyance is the ability to see something happening far away. Telepathy involves learning information by reading someone's mind. And precognition is looking into the future to see how events will unfold. Targ devised a series of experiments to test his chosen ESP group. In their early trials, Targ sat in a room with one participant at Stanford. Meanwhile, another researcher drove to a location within half an hour radius. Targ would then interview his test subject, who would try to use their ESP abilities to locate the other researcher. For one man, this proved easy. A retired policeman named Pat Price correctly described a mental image of the researcher's location seven times out of nine trials. Another trial involved providing random coordinates to test subjects. They would then try to draw an accurate map of the area without ever having been there. The people with ESP didn't have to envision everything correctly, just most of the time, to prove their conclusions were more accurate than if they had randomly guessed. And according to Targ's findings, they passed with flying colors. Subjects were able to consistently identify locations up to 10,000 kilometers away. They could also supposedly identify events that would occur several days into the future. The average chance that people would make correct guesses in these experiments was 10 in a billion. That means it would be 10,000 times easier to predict the California lottery results than it would be to randomly choose the right images. But in multiple cases, test subjects had an exceedingly high accuracy. One participant, named Hella Hamid, was asked to draw pictures of nine random locations using remote viewing. Four of them were partially correct, and five of them were exactly the same as the real-life places. Statistician Dr. Jessica Utz analyzed the data from Targ's study in 2018. She also reviewed the results of similar programs from the CIA, Princeton, UCLA, and other groups. She found the data matched across the board. The subjects using ESP consistently performed better than the average person might by simply guessing. Call it ESP or psychic powers, but Dorothy Allison exhibited remote viewing tendencies similar to the ones studied by the SRI and the CIA. She used precognition, as she often had visions before a crime was committed. For example, she allegedly saw Michael Cursus drown several hours before he fell in a river. And sometimes, her visions came weeks before a murder occurred. In March 1991, Dorothy went to Ontario, Canada to investigate the disappearance of an unnamed teenage girl. While driving past a lake, she had a strong feeling that a young girl had been dismembered, encased in cement, and thrown into the water. But nothing was found in the lake. Nobody understood these clues until four months later, when someone discovered the dismembered limbs of 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey in that same lake, encased in cement. 
But Leslie had disappeared only two weeks before she was found, meaning that when Dorothy drove past the lake, she saw something that hadn't even happened yet. If this was true, then Dorothy's claim she caught Wayne Williams a year before he killed anyone had precedent. Perhaps her predictions weren't incorrect, just ill-timed. Even her inaccurate visions had a potential excuse. Targ's SRI research found that analytical thinking or presumptions can disrupt someone with ESP's ability to remote view. To accurately see an image using remote viewing, a subject has to clear their mind and avoid attaching any meaning to what they saw. If researchers interrupt the session, it could theoretically disturb the accuracy of the test subject's vision. Targ called this analytical overlay, or AOL. When Dorothy made mistakes, skeptics labeled her a scam artist. But Targ's studies indicate that failures and misinterpretations are something of an occupational hazard for psychics. And who knows how many times desperate parents or detectives may have interrupted Dorothy's readings, causing AOL. The SRI study ended in 1995. Four years later, the psychic world took a hit. Dorothy Allison died in 1999 at age 74. She had correctly predicted she wouldn't live to see 75 years old. Dorothy was a huge figure within the psychic community. Some saw her refusal to let James Randi test her as an indication of guilt. Others saw it as a sign of dignity. All her life, Dorothy followed her mother's advice to never repeat herself, to believe in herself, and to shut out those who tried to delegitimize her. The scope of her abilities remains a mystery, but with further research, maybe we'll one day look back at her life and see all the pieces fall into place. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with a brand new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Kit Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new ParCast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify. Spotify.